Well, good evening, Grace. Uh, it's been really good to hear from Josh Moody this weekend, as well as from uh, our panelists last night and uh, Junior in the breakout sessions this morning, and maybe pick up a few books. <laughs> our conference is called Take Heart, Comfort in a Chaotic World. The world's chaotic, it's confused, it's a mess, and it's no fun living in a mess. It's scary, and it's discouraging. It can fill us with anxiety. What we need is comfort, the comfort only Jesus can give. So where do we find the comfort of Jesus? How do we access it? A couple of things that have stood out to me so far uh, in our conference, so far, among other things, John has told us that we are like branches from the Jesus vine. Right? First half of uh, John 15, this is Josh Moody's talks. We abide in Jesus, we thrive in Jesus, that is, we continue to draw comfort and nourishment from Him by loving Him and loving one another. Love is our fruitful access to the comfort of Jesus. And we also bear witness to Jesus in the face of hatred and persecution. Uh, second half of chapter 15, this was Junior's breakout sessions. As we share in the rejection of Jesus, we will also experience the comfort of Jesus. So love and witness are where we find the comfort of Jesus. Now, for an uh, introspective and individualistic society like ours, this is totally counterintuitive, right? Uh, before we jump into our passage, let me make a quick observation here. Uh, what I think John, in part, has been telling us is this. The internal problems of fear and discouragement and anxiety, they have, in part, an external solution. So if we feel the chaos inside, some of what John's telling us is we need to go outside ourselves and find someone to love, beginning with our brothers and sisters here at Grace. Right? If we feel the chaos inside, we should go outside ourselves and find someone to evangelize. Uh, as uh, Amanda Oakes last night here on stage observed so helpfully, isolation is dangerous. So friends, the chaos inside, yes, of course it needs prayer and confession and repentance and reflection. Absolutely, internal chaos needs internal work, but we are not just internal isolated souls floating around in the ether, right? We, all, we are also external embodied relational creatures, and the solutions to our problems have to address the whole of who we are. So the world is crazy, inside we're a mess, we need the comfort of Jesus, how do we get it? In part, we need to get out, like get outside ourselves, and as we love Jesus and one another, as we bear witness to the world, Jesus will comfort us. As we work outside, we will take heart inside. Uh, the passage that we're gonna look at in just a moment in chapter 16, it's gonna explain to us why this is. And it's also going to do some of the internal work that also brings comfort, uh, helping us to understand with our minds and rest with our hearts in the one whom Jesus has sent to us, the Holy Spirit. Uh, before I read our passage for us, would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I confess that I'm anxious. Uh, I'm an anxious person. Uh, discouragement and anxiety, Father, you know, are a regular part of my experience, and that's not what you want for your children. 
So, Father, have mercy on me and on us. Please forgive us, Father, and heal us. And please also open to us now by your Spirit, your word of comfort to us, and give us ears to hear and hearts to respond with faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John 16, beginning kind of oddly in the middle of verse 4. Jesus speaking, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So I'd like to take this passage kind of in two big parts tonight. Part one is verses four through seven. Here, Jesus comforts the disciples by assuring them that when he goes away, the Holy Spirit will come to help them. Part two is verses eight through 15. Here, Jesus comforts the disciples by telling them what the Holy Spirit will do for them and through them for the world. The plan is just to walk through these verses step by step, make some observations, and then watch for the comfort that Jesus brings. So part one, verses four through seven. Sorrow has filled the heart of the disciples. And no wonder, right? Jesus had just told them they would be hated persecuted, and killed by the world. That's a downer. (laughs) But what they're really grieved about is that Jesus is going away. They love Jesus, and they can't imagine life being anything but miserable without him. Like, how could we go on living without Jesus? But know what Jesus says. None of you asks me, where are you going? You see, Jesus is saying to them, Guys, you're asking the wrong question, and that's why you're sad. (laughs) This is really remarkable, right? Jesus is going to his death, and yet here he is more concerned for his terrified disciples than he is for himself, right? Jesus is so tender with them, and likewise, he is so tender with us, yearning to bring us comfort. The disciples are sad because they're only thinking about their loss of Jesus, but they should actually be rejoicing as well because of where Jesus is going. At the end of chapter 14, Jesus said that the disciples should have rejoiced that he was going away, 
Why? Because he was going to the Father. The disciples were thinking, right, about themselves without Jesus rather than about Jesus with the Father. <laughs> and aren't we just like the disciples here? Only thinking of ourselves and only feeling sorrow. <laughs> I mean, that's usually how it works for me, right? When I'm anxious, I'm only thinking of uh, my failures and my loneliness and where the money's going to come from and the challenges at work and the craziness in culture, etc., etc., etc. Now, there's no avoiding sorrow over ourselves and over the troubles of this, this world. But the sorrow of a maturing disciple of Jesus will be accompanied by joy. Like as we sing, we labor on in weakness and rejoicing. Right? Until the new heavens and the new earth, when Jesus wipes away every tear from our eyes, until then, it's always going to be a mix of sorrow for a world that's broken and yet also joy because of Jesus. And if the joy is missing, Jesus gives us the question to ask, where is he going? Right? Where did Jesus go? Where is he right now? Well, after Jesus rose again from the dead, what do we confess in the Apostles' Creed? He ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Amen. Jesus, because he suffered death for us, right, has now received the name that is above every name. Right now, even though the name of Jesus is not particularly loved here on earth, Jesus himself is being acknowledged by the whole host of heaven as Lord and God, and by some of us here on earth as well. Right now, Jesus is receiving the worship of the seraphim as they cry, holy, holy, holy. And someday, we're gonna join them in person. Right now, Jesus is experiencing, as the risen Lord, the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. Jesus is with the church triumphant, the communion of saints who have gone before us and who, though absent from the body, are present with the Lord. And as Jesus looks down from heaven right now at us, at the church militant, at believers still in the midst of the struggles and suffering of this life, it's amazing. He says here, John 15, that his joy is in us. <laughs> For all our mess here on earth, Jesus in heaven is rejoicing in the obedience his spirit empowers in us. He's delighting in the beauty his spirit creates in us. He is satisfied in the testimony his spirit speaks through us. Right? Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. That's where Jesus is. And he promises, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And hallelujah. Right, friends, in our sorrow, we would do well to ask of Jesus, where are you going? The comfort of Jesus comes to us from where Jesus is, with the Father, in power and in glory, waiting until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Now, this is clearly another take-heart strategy for us. Yes, we've got sorrow, and we'd be stone-hearted not to feel it, but if sorrow is all we feel, the question to ask is, where is Jesus? And note here once again, we find that the solution to the sorrow inside us is in part outside us in our resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus. Now, what Jesus says next in our passage, verse 7, 
I bet plenty of Christians throughout history have struggled to believe this verse. Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. You think, really? Lord, it's hard enough that you're leaving us, but you say it's actually better this way? Feels like he's breaking up with us. <laughs> Jesus says, if I go, I will send to you the Holy Spirit. Okay, so somehow the coming of the Spirit is better than the bodily presence of Jesus. Right? Jesus goes, the Spirit comes. How could this be a fair exchange? Friends, do you see that if the coming of the Spirit is to make up for the going of Jesus, the Spirit has to be just as cool as Jesus is, right? right? What could compensate for the going away of God the Son? only the arrival of God the Spirit. If the Spirit is anything less than God, there could be no advantage in this exchange. But if it's God the Spirit who is coming to indwell and empower us, maybe Jesus was right. I think if we're gonna find comfort in our sorrow, we need to understand how cool the Spirit is. Now John has actually structured his gospel in part to help us see that this changing of the guard, Jesus goes, the Spirit comes, that this has been in the plan all along, like from long ago, and it is astounding. So check this out, the messianic expectation of the Old Testament. It was not only that God's royal son would rescue Israel and inherit the nations, it was also that as the anointed one, the one anointed by the Spirit, the Messiah himself would in turn anoint others with the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and he will pour out his Spirit on all flesh, says the Old Testament. Now, John knows his Old Testament, so he opens his gospel with John the Baptist saying about Jesus, this is he who baptizes with the Spirit. In chapter seven, Jesus said he would make rivers of living water, that is the Spirit, flow from the hearts of believers. Then chapter 20, the resurrected Jesus finally begins to baptize with the Spirit, right? He breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then of course in Acts chapter two at Pentecost, Jesus pours out the Spirit from on high. So John wants us to see that the saving work of God the Son was always ordered toward the saving work of God the Spirit, right? The Son and the Spirit accomplish a joint mission of salvation. Listen to how Galatians 4 describes this twofold saving mission of Son and Spirit. Paul writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. How does the Father redeem and adopt us? He sends his Son, yes, and then he also sends his Spirit. This is the, the passing of the baton that Jesus wants to encourage his disciples with. The salvation that Jesus accomplishes will be brought to completion in our lives by the Spirit. And note that Paul calls him here the Spirit of the Son. The Spirit is Jesus' own Spirit. Uh, chapter 14, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him 
and make our home with him. The spirit indwelling us is how father and son make their home with us. So physically, bodily, Jesus is not here, but by his own spirit, Jesus is with us always to the end of the age. Jesus didn't break up with us, right? Although it's hard to fathom, Jesus himself is more intimately near to us by his spirit living within us than if Jesus were here with us only physically. And when he comes again in glory, and we have both his indwelling spirit and his physical resurrected presence, I tell you, friends, no eye has seen, (laughs) no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So friends, take heart and come, Lord Jesus. But of course, the disciples at this point, they've got no idea just how cool the spirit is. So Jesus explains. And here we're moving into sort of part two of this passage, verses eight through 15. What we get here is a stretch of eight entire verses focusing on the Holy Spirit. Now, as we've seen a bit, there's lots elsewhere about the Spirit in John, but here we get concentrated attention on the Spirit. When the Helper comes, how will He help us? What will the Spirit do for us? Who is the Spirit? So Jesus' little sermon here, if you can call it that, on the Spirit has appropriately three points. Point one, verses eight through 11, the Spirit convicts the world. Point two, verses 12 and 13, the Spirit teaches the apostles. Point three, verses 14 and 15, the Spirit glorifies Jesus. The Spirit convicts the world, teaches the apostles, glorifies Jesus. Okay, so first, the Spirit convicts the world, verses eight and nine, the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Okay, so the Spirit will convict the world, the whole world. Now, Jesus did this same kind of convicting, but he did so only locally, right, in a particular town or synagogue or house, but the Spirit will do so globally throughout the world. Friends, if we are going to make disciples of all nations, it is to our advantage that our testimony is not limited to the bodily presence of Jesus. Our testimony is empowered by the Spirit in all places. And the Spirit convicts the world of unbelief. Now, the Spirit convicts the world of other sins too, murder and theft and adultery and so on, but the root beneath these sins, the sin that every human person, the whole world, is guilty of is unbelief. And of course, it's only in dealing with this root sin, the root sin of unbelief, that the other sins can be dealt with. Now, what does it mean, verses 11, 10 and 11, that the Spirit will convict the world of righteousness and judgment. (laughs) Okay, let me just say, here's a tough nut to crack. Um, This is a hard passage. There are lots of proposals. I'll be brief. Best guess here. Jesus, even in John's Gospel, was uh, constantly exposing empty religion, that is, supposed righteousness. Jesus has now gone to the Father, but the Spirit will continue and expand this aspect of Jesus' ministry. The Spirit will convict the world of the emptiness of its own righteousness. Likewise, the Spirit will convict the world that its judgment about right and wrong is totally twisted. Right? The world is like the people of Nineveh. They can't tell their moral right hand from their left. 
And the Spirit shows the world that its moral standards share the condemnation of the ruler of this world. So the Spirit will convict the world that its sin is wicked, that its supposed righteousness is empty, and that its judgments are twisted. And of course, it's the Spirit who does this, right? Not us. <laughs> Friends, you and I do not have the power to open the eyes of the blind. But the Spirit does. And one of the things the Spirit loves to do in this world, more than just about anything else, is to open the eyes of the blind. The Spirit loves to enable unbelievers to see Jesus, to understand that unbelief in Jesus is sin, and to repent of it and run to Jesus for salvation. And praise be to God that the Spirit does so. Right? What if the Spirit hadn't convicted me of the wickedness of my sin? What if the Spirit hadn't shown me the emptiness of my righteousness and the perversion of my judgment? If the Spirit had done that for me, for us, we would all stand condemned along with Satan. And if the Spirit could bring knuckleheads like us to <laughs> Jesus, right? He can bring anyone, right? So take heart, friends. Opening the eyes of the blind, what is impossible with man is possible with God the Holy Spirit. In the daunting task of proclaiming the gospel to all nations, God the Spirit goes with us, and He is mighty to save. So Grace, keep loving, keep testifying, keep praying. Point number two in Jesus' sermon, verses 12 and 13, is that the Spirit teaches the apostles. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Uh, now some people have thought that Jesus here is promising new revelations of the spirit to all believers. And so this passage has been, I guess, a regular source of mischief in church history. People get some new idea, some new theology they're really excited about and they say, behold, the spirit's guiding me into all truth. Come, follow me. Now, as with all good lies, this one contains an element of truth. Does the Holy Spirit guide us as we make decisions in life? Absolutely. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Does the Holy Spirit guide us as we try to understand Scripture? Absolutely. So before we hear a sermon or read our Bibles, sometimes we'll pray, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The Spirit guides our decisions. The Spirit helps us understand Scripture, but I don't think that's what uh, the work of the Spirit that John is talking about here. How do we know this? Um, look back, if you would, at the very end of chapter 15, verses 26, and particularly verse 27, right? The Spirit there in 26 will bear witness about me. And then verse 27, and you also will bear witness. Why? Because you have been with me from the beginning. So it's, it's not all believers, but those who had been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. It is these disciples who are going to bear a unique witness to Jesus. Uh, in the book of Acts, when the apostles go to replace Judas, the betrayer, Peter says this, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Okay? So 
the apostles bear a unique authority as designated witnesses to Jesus. That's what uh, Jesus is talking about here in John. And then note what the content of this unique authoritative apostolic witness is. We get a clue and a really important one in the phrase, all the truth, right? This is, this is not just some truth we're talking about here, but all truth. Uh, Jesus says in chapter 14, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see, there's a, a totality and a completeness to the revelation that Jesus is talking about here. Uh, in chapter 15, it is all that I have heard from my Father that the Spirit will reveal. So the all truth that Jesus is talking about here, the unique testimony of the apostles, is supremely Scripture. Now, the Spirit was certainly guiding the apostles in their leadership of the early church. Right? Peter could say in Acts 15, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Right? But the Spirit guides the apostles not merely in their earthly ministry, but supremely into all truth in the Gospels and letters that they would write that would become for us the New Testament. Right? Through the apostles, the Holy Spirit gives us in Scripture all the truth we need to know about Jesus. So if somebody says, oh, the Bible's great, but you also need the Book of Mormon, right? or the Bible's great, but you also need the Roman Catholic Magisterium. If someone says you need more than the Bible, what does that imply about what's in the Bible? Right? If, if you need more than what's here, What's here is not enough, right? It implies that the Bible doesn't contain all the truth we need to know about Jesus, that the Spirit only did half his job. And I hope you see that that would be cause for real anxiety. I mean, just think, if the conditions for salvation changed every time there were some new revelation, we would live in constant fear, right? We might think, okay, for right now, I think I'm right with God, but what if the Spirit releases an update in January? <laughs> Praise be to God, the Bible has no updates. It doesn't need them. The Spirit did guide the apostles into all truth. So friends, we can rest, we can take comfort in the Bible that the Spirit has given us. And even though this inspiring work of the Spirit, even though it comes after the earthly ministry of Jesus, note, it's not going beyond the earthly ministry of Jesus. Right? Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and the Spirit is guiding the apostles into that. Right? The Spirit is not eclipsing Jesus with new teachings, but preserving everything that Jesus taught. Right? Again, this is Jesus' own Spirit. That's why the Spirit's teaching is authoritative. Right? Note the pattern. Uh, false prophets are said to speak visions of their own minds. Uh, elsewhere in John, the devil speaks out of his own character. But here in our passage, the Spirit does not speak on his own authority. But what? Only what he hears from Jesus. Right? In Scripture, the Spirit speaks pure Jesus, nothing else. The Holy Spirit guides the apostles to write the whole truth about Jesus in Scripture. Uh, this is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, the enoughness of the Bible that Jackson has mentioned this weekend. So friends, take heart. Even though Jesus isn't with us physically, we have in our hands all the truth, like 100% of the truth that Jesus wants us to know about him. 
It's all from the Father and from the Son and from the Holy Spirit. It is 100% the Word of God, not from concentrate. (laughs) Now, when the Spirit leads us and guides us individually, which praise be to God, He does all the time, but when the Spirit guides us, He will never give us a new theology that's not in the Bible. And we don't have to roam the planet on the lookout for some new truth. It's all right here. Now, I confess, I've wished a number of times that the Spirit had told us a little bit more in the Bible. And sometimes I've wished He'd (laughs) told us a little less. Or I'd wished He'd said something more clearly. But the Spirit guided the apostles into all the truth. No more, no less. The Spirit guides, you could say, like Gandalf arrives. A wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to, (laughs) right? In the Bible, the Spirit says precisely what he means to, and he says neither more nor less than he means to. The Bible is exactly what God wants to say to us. So we should be content even if we wish he'd said more. We should be grateful even if we wish he'd said less, and we should be willing to puzzle over those passages in Scripture that God has chosen to express in ways that are mysterious or even confusing to us. He meant it that way. And then if some clever guy comes along with an attractive new theology that's not from the Bible, and if he says, come, follow me, that's the devil. (laughs) Even if he has an apparently flourishing ministry, uh, Martin Luther says, just ignore him, even if it snows miracles every day. All right, third point of Jesus' sermon, verses 14 and 15. Here, Jesus not only gives the reason behind his first two points, he also rises above what the Spirit does to tell us who the Spirit is. So why does the Spirit convict the world? Why does the Spirit teach the apostles? Because these bring glory to Jesus, and that's what the Spirit does. He will glorify me. In fact, it's it's not just in convicting and teaching. Jesus is making a comprehensive claim here about the Spirit. What Jesus is saying is that in everything the Spirit does, He glorifies Jesus. A lot of people claim to be doing the work of the Spirit when they're not bringing glory to Jesus. But guess what, friends? If a person or a movement or a ministry however impressive, even if its teachings are from the Bible. Still, if they're not bringing glory to Jesus, they are not empowered by the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, if a person or ministry or movement, however odd or unconventional they appear, if they are bringing glory to Jesus, the Spirit is there doing His work. So maybe you've heard this analogy of the Spirit. It's like Jesus stands center stage and the Spirit is the spotlight. I don't know if that makes the Father like the director. I don't know. Don't press the analogy. But the point is, if if you are seeing Jesus clearly, if you are hearing His voice, if you're tasting His sweetness, if you're seeing and delighting in His beauty, then you are experiencing this spotlighting work of the Spirit. The Spirit shines the spotlight on Jesus. And that's also, as we noted at the beginning, that's why the solution to our internal fear and anxiety and discouragement, that's why the solution is in part external, 
right? Just as the Spirit points away from himself and to Jesus, so the Spirit points us away from ourselves to Jesus and to those whom Jesus has called us to serve, right? This too is part of this spotlighting work of the Spirit. Verses 14 and 15, he will glorify me. But now, why does he do so? Jesus continues, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here we finally get a glimpse, not merely at what the Spirit does, but at who the Spirit is. What the Spirit declares to the disciples is, right, the whole truth about Jesus, what becomes the teaching of the New Testament. But Jesus is not just restating here that the Spirit will guide the disciples into all the truth. Jesus is also explaining why the Spirit does this. So note this sequence of events that Jesus talks about. He says uh, from John 8, I speak just as the Father taught me. And then here, whatever the Spirit hears, he will speak. Right? So the, the sequence is like first the Father teaches Jesus and then Jesus speaks. And then the Spirit hears from Father and Son and then he speaks. So why is there this kind of historical sequence of revelation? Why do Father, Son, and Spirit work in this order? Jesus' explanation here is a bit strange, but he says, because all that the Father has is mine, and the Spirit will take what is mine. Okay, obviously, so the question is, what is what is mine, <laughs> right? right? Stay with me here. So Jesus, I hope you'll see, he has to be talking about more than just the gospel message, right? What is it that gets passed from Father to Son to Spirit? Well, think about it. If this were just the gospel message, how would the Spirit take the gospel message from Jesus? Was, was the Spirit ignorant of the gospel before he learned it from Jesus? And note that Jesus is talking about all that the Father has. Is the gospel message all that the Father has? Like, what does the Father have, and how does this come to belong to the Son and the Spirit? Okay, to find the answer, we have to look back a few chapters to John 5. In John 5, Jesus says some wild and amazing things. Here's one. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. That is, the Father gives the Son knowledge of everything He does. Now tell me, how much knowledge does it take to know of everything the Father is doing? Lots. Right. And the Father gives this knowledge to the Son, Jesus continues, so that whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So again, tell me, how much power does it take to do whatever the Father does. Lots, right? Last one. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Part of what the Father gives to the Son is intrinsic possession of life. You'll see that this has to be talking about more than Christ's humanity, which had to be capable of dying for us. 
So what Jesus discusses at more length in John 5 and what he recalls here in verses 14 and 15 of our chapter, it's what we call the eternal generation of the Son. That is, within the divine life, in the happy land of the Trinity above all worlds, the Father eternally gives the Son his being. Everything the Father has and is, he gives eternally to the Son, all his knowledge, all his power, all his life, his very self. The Father eternally gives it all to the Son. And the Son is eternally receiving all of this from the Father. And then, when Jesus talks here in our passage about the Spirit taking what is mine, he's talking about what we call the eternal procession of the Spirit. The language is from just a few verses earlier. Look at the end of chapter 15 again, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That is, the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. The Spirit eternally receives his being from the Father, and in our passage, he will take what is mine. The Spirit also eternally receives his being from the Son. So what Jesus is saying here is that within the divine life, the Father eternally gives the Son and the Spirit their being, and this explains the order of their work in time, the sequence in which they do things, the ways in which they relate to each other. The Spirit is eternally from the Father and the Son, and that is why He glorifies the Father and the Son. Right? The Spirit glorifies Father and Son because He is eternally from them. Okay. How's this supposed to comfort us? Well, obviously not everything has to prove its worth in being comforting to us, although this in fact is. Things can be true and good and beautiful and awesome in their own right, but guess what? There is actually comfort for us here in this intricate theology. Some people, they worry that the Holy Spirit doesn't get enough attention in the Bible, right? <laughs> the thinking goes like this. Well, Trinity is three in one, so each person of the Trinity should get an even third of the attention. Right? So, for every verse that Jesus gets in the Bible or sermon or song in church, Father and Spirit should get one too. Got to be fair. Now, it's true that Father, Son, and Spirit are identical as God, but they are also distinct as persons. Right? They're, they're not interchangeable. It's not like Father, Son, and Spirit just sort of like cast lots to see which one of them was going to become incarnate. Right? They didn't play rock, paper, scissors to see which one was going to get poured out at Pentecost. Right? What Father, Son, and Spirit do for each other and for us, it's not arbitrary, it's not half-hearted, no. It flows from who they are. It's work that flows from their very being. It expresses their eternal relations to each other, and here's the thing, they love it. So the attention the Spirit receives in Scripture is in part a reflection of who He is. As I suppose the theater people will tell you, uh, occasionally you need to pay attention to what a spotlight is and how it works and where it's pointed. So Scripture occasionally spotlights the spotlight, as it is doing in our passage, but mostly it's focused on the stage. Or it's like this. Um, you know when people say that they're in the zone, right? When you're doing something and you just get absorbed in the flow of your activity, right? It's playing an instrument or knitting, I'm told. It's often doing something with your hands, right? Assembling a puzzle. It's, it's energizing and you're focused. You totally lose track of time. When the Spirit is shining the spotlight on Jesus, he is in the zone, right? When the Spirit is glorifying Jesus, he doesn't feel neglected or overlooked. He loves it. 
So why does Jesus tell us about how Father, Son, and Spirit are eternally related to each other? Well, in part, it's to reassure us that here, what the Spirit does for us in time, it is based on the rock-solid glory of eternity. In other words, the Spirit has his dream job. Don't feel sorry for him. Don't worry that someday he's gonna find something better to do. No, the Spirit's job is perfectly suited to who he is. He is absolutely passionate about it, and he wants to draw you in. Paul tells us that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Why? Because as the Spirit glorifies Jesus in our hearts and lives, as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So take heart, friends. God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father and of the Son is on a Jesus-glorifying mission in this world. The Spirit shines the spotlight of our attention and our affections straight at Jesus, and we are invited and empowered to tell others, come and see. As part of his mission, right, the Spirit convicts the world and teaches the apostles because these bring glory to Jesus and the Spirit loves nothing so much as bringing glory to the Son from whom, with the Father, the Spirit eternally receives all that he is. Our conference is called Take Heart, Comfort in a Chaotic World. Jesus is away ruling in heaven and the church is here struggling on earth. It's strange, but it's not a problem. This age is not plan B. You see, Jesus came not only to save us, but also to usher in this age of the Spirit. This chaotic world was one of his interim goals. So until Jesus comes again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, let's get out of ourselves, right? Let's rejoice at Jesus' heavenly glory. Let's love our brothers and sisters here at Grace well. And let's tell a broken world where abundant salvation can be found. And again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, let's also do the internal work of trusting in the 100% completeness of what the Spirit has inspired in the Bible. And let's strive to learn all the Bible tells us about the glorious person and work of the Holy Spirit. In so doing, we will find comfort, the comfort of Jesus. Amen.